All right, and let me say thank you for being here today, and if I've not gotten the chance to say Happy New Year to you, then Happy New Year. We're excited about this new year, and today we are beginning a new series called One Another. Uh, This series will focus on uh, several ways the New Testament instructs us to relate to one another. There are over 40 verses and passages in the New Testament alone about how Christians are to relate to one another. In fact, here's just a sampling of some of these. Uh, Love one another, bear one another's burdens, teach and admonish one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, encourage one another, serve one another, and forgive one another. And that's just a sample. Uh, There are numerous uh, stories, parables, Um, Other passages and verses that all teach this truth that when you enter into a relationship with God, you also enter into a family of God. And we most often call this family of God the church. And so the idea of someone following Christ and not being a part of a church is really foreign to the New Testament. In fact, if you sat down with Paul, the writer of 13 letters in our New Testament, and you said to Paul, hey, can somebody be a Christian but not be involved in church? Paul would answer like this. Yeah, technically, is that Paul? (laughs) That's not what I would say. (laughs) Paul would say, yes, Technically, you can be a Christian without being in church, but why would you? It doesn't make sense. Technically, can you play a round of golf using only a putter? Yes, you can, but why would you? It would be so much harder. Could you play a tennis match and only use your hand and no racket? Well, you can, but why would you? It would be way too hard. Could you clean all the floors in your house using only a toothbrush? You could, but why would you? It would be too hard. Can you follow Christ and not be involved in a church? Well, yes, you can, but why would you? It's so hard doing it alone. And so one of the main reasons that we are doing this series right now is we want to encourage all of you over the next several weeks to sign up and be a part of a home team next semester. On January 29th, we are kicking off a series on Abraham called Developing a Faith for All Seasons. Um, This is something that we're going to be focused on as an entire church. And we want you to get into one of our small groups that we call home teams. Even if it's just for one semester, we want you to be a part of a home team. Um, If you join a home team, you will get a book. We've got books for everyone. And if you're in a home team, it is completely free. If you're not in a home team, it's $150. (laughs) And that price may go up. Um, If you join a home team, you will know exactly what's going on. When you come on Sundays, we're going to be talking about what you'll be studying that week in your home team. You'll be clued in if you do not join a home team. This winter, your pipes will freeze and burst. If you join a home team, God will bless you. If you don't, 
then you're just going to have an awful year. I've warned you. We want all of you to be a part of a home team. And over the next several weeks, we're going to give you very clear instructions on how you can do that. And so this week, we are starting this series, One Another, on the topic of forgiving one another. Throughout the New Testament, we see that we are encouraged, instructed, commanded to forgive one another. Here are just two verses that instruct us in this way. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then from Ephesians, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So here's our question this morning. Why is it that we read about this over and over in the New Testament? Why did Jesus tell so many parables where the central theme of the parable was forgive one another? Why in the Lord's prayer, this model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples, did he say, when you pray, part of that prayer should be, Lord, forgive, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Why is forgiveness so important? Well, there are a number of reasons, but this morning I'm going to focus on one of those. And we will begin with a verse that is a seemingly very obscure, almost random verse that's found in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Uh, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, we will start in 2 Samuel chapter 17 with verse 23. And just to set this up, this takes place during the reign of King David, uh, who ruled over Israel about a thousand years before Christ. King David was the second king over Israel. And in King David's administration, there was a senior advisor named Ahithophel. And this verse tells us something about Ahithophel. Verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and he was buried in his father's tomb. Now on the surface, this doesn't seem to make sense. Why would this man suddenly, because of his, his advice wasn't followed, travel to his hometown and hang himself simply because someone did not follow his advice. I've given a lot of advice before, and a lot of times that advice wasn't followed. I might have been discouraged. I might have been upset. I might have been confused, but I was never suicidal over the fact that someone didn't follow my advice, even if they were close to me, and if, even if it was a major issue. I might be really down, I might be dismayed, I might be hurt over the fact that they didn't follow my advice, but I never got to the point that I wanted to end my life simply because someone did not follow my advice. Why would this man Ahithophel decide to hang himself simply because his advice wasn't followed? To get the answer, we have to turn back a few pages to an episode in the life of King David. King David, again, the second king over Israel, reigned about a thousand years before Christ. 
generally followed the Lord faithfully. His reign started off very well. He had a strong heart for the Lord. But David, like all of us, had his moments where he veered. And he had his mistakes. And his biggest mistake is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And that mistake begins this way. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you're likely familiar with this story. Uh, This is David's biggest sin in his life. And the writer of this story begins with this phrase. At the time when kings go off to war, all this happened. Meaning David should have been off at war. David was supposed to be on the battlefront with his troops who were fighting against the enemies of Israel, but David was not where he was supposed to be. David instead was at home. His sin began simply by being not where God would have him to be. And so David one evening gets up and he goes to the roof of his palace and he's walking around the roof of the palace where he from that height could look down on the homes of those who are living in Jerusalem and from his vantage point he looks down into a courtyard and there he spies this beautiful woman bathing in her courtyard. He sends for a servant, come here servant, go over there to that house, the fourth one down, turn right, go down, go to that house, knock on the door, and I want you to ask, who is that beautiful woman who lives there? Servant goes, servant comes back and says, well, David, I've got the report. Her name is Bathsheba. She is the daughter of Eliam, and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Uriah who is one of your soldiers, Uriah who is off at war, who is where he is supposed to be, who is fighting for Israel. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. By the way, David, did I mention that she's married? (laughs) Did I mention that fact? But by this point, David's passions are running wild. His imagination is running wild. And the fact that she is married does not matter. So he sends for her, she comes, he sleeps with her, he sends her back home, her husband's out of town, he'll never know, no big deal, no harm, no foul, it's all over. Until a few weeks go by and David receives a letter with a two-word sentence that would forever change his life. Dear King David, I'm pregnant, Bathsheba. David at this point tries desperately to cover his sin. A series of events ensues where he tries everything that he can to somehow get this uh, sin covered up. And eventually, the only thing that he thinks he can do is to have her husband Uriah killed. 
And then with Uriah out of the way, he is able to bring Bathsheba into his palace and marry her. And he thinks, okay, that's it. Problem solved. I've covered up my sin. Now everything is fine. Except even when we think we have fooled everyone else, we cannot fool God. And God sees exactly what we've done and there are consequences for our actions. And David discovers this the hard way. God sends a prophet named Nathan in to confront David about his sin. And David, at that point, the light bulb goes off and he realizes just the depth of his sin and what he has done. And he cries out for forgiveness. And Nathan assures him, you are forgiven. God has forgiven you for this sin. However, there are consequences for what you have done. And here's what Nathan says, chapter 12. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have chosen to live by the sword. Because you have chosen to live by violence, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, out of your own family line, I am going to bring calamity upon you. These words of Nathan the prophet turn out to be right on the money. One of David's sons, a man named Absalom, decides that he does not want to wait on dear old dad to die, to take over the kingdom, that he wants dad out of the way so that he can sit on the throne and he can be king. And so Absalom musters up an army and this army invades Jerusalem and this army is very strong and they force David out of the castle. They force David's small army that's with him out of the castle and then Absalom is able to take over the palace and to sit on the throne and to reign as king while David is on the run. In the immediate aftermath of that, Absalom begins to plan his next moves. And so he turns to one of the senior advisors of his father David, a man named Ahithophel, who stayed in the palace and did not leave with David. Ahithophel was known to be a man of great wisdom. And so in 2 Samuel 17, Absalom says, what should I do next? And Ahithophel, the senior advisor, said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror and then all the people will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people would be unharmed. And so Ahithophel's advice was this. David is off balance. He is on the run. He just has a few troops with him. Here is what you need to do, Absalom. You gather 12,000 troops and you hunt him down and you kill him and him alone. And once you take out David, all the people will return to you. Once you kill David, they will then become loyal to you. But you need to move now. You need to move quickly. For some reason, Absalom then turns to another advisor, a man named Hushai. And he turns to Hushai and said, hey, Ahithophel has said this. Hushai, what do you say? And Hushai says, no, I would wait. 
What you need to do is you need to gather troops. You need to sort of make sure that you've got everything in order. Wait for a while before you go and pursue David. Ahithophel's advice was not followed. And so on the heels of that, here's what we read, the verse we started with. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and he was buried in his father's tomb. So here's the question we asked earlier. Why would Ahithophel hang himself simply because Absalom did not follow his advice? And let's add to that, why would Ahithophel insist that Absalom set out that night, hunt down David, and kill David and only David? What was driving Ahithophel? One more verse, again, another seemingly obscure verse that is found in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. In that chapter, what we find is a listing of a group of men called the 30. The 30 uh, was essentially the secret service for the king. Uh, They were an elite fighting force. They were the bodyguards for King David. They had pledged that they would give their life for him. Wherever King David went, the 30 would follow David and they would protect David. And in that list of men called the 30, we read about one individual. One of those elite fighting soldiers was Eliam, son of Ahithophel the Gilonite. Do you remember that name, Eliam? When we started earlier, when David was curious about who this beautiful woman was bathing, and he sent the servant, hey, find out some information about her and come back and tell me who she is. And the servant returns and he says, yes, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But he also says she is the daughter of Eliam. Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam and the granddaughter of Ahithophel. David had not only committed this sin with Bathsheba and had her husband put to death to cover up his sin, but he did it to the daughter of a man who had pledged his life in protecting David and to the granddaughter of a man who is a senior advisor in the castle, always trying to look out for the best interest of the king. David did not care that it was to a friend, a loyal servant, to another loyal servant, to the daughter and granddaughter of these men that he committed these sins. He was so overwhelmed with passion and desire, and he was king, and he could do what he wanted to do. And so even though she was the daughter and granddaughter of of these men close to him, he brought her into his castle And all those events took place after they slept together. Imagine Ahithophel, how he felt about this. David thought he had covered his sin, but people knew what was going on. And Ahithophel knew what was going on. And Eliam, we're not told exactly how Eliam felt, but you know as a father father that he was upset. But there is this strange phenomenon that happens with grandparents. I've not gotten there yet. I do not have grandchildren yet, but I have witnessed what happens to grandparents when they have grandchildren. They go absolutely nuts. I mean, there is this weird thing that happens. I saw it in my own parents. You know, when I was growing up, 
my dad was the cheapest person around. I mean, if I went to him and asked for $5, I would spend the next hour listening to him describe every job he had ever had in his entire life and how he had to walk to work uphill in the snow both ways and every dollar he had ever earned. It got to the point I said, just forget it. I'm going to go to the neighbor and ask for $5. I mean, it's not, it's not worth it. And then grandchildren came along and he's like, Daddy Warbucks, just, yeah. We told your dad that money didn't grow on trees, but it does. Here, just take. How, how much do you want? My mom, when I was growing up, would not let us have any sweets in the house at all. I mean, she was healthy before it was cool to be healthy. You know, all natural, all of that. And then grandparent, when she became a grandmother, she would come to our house with her purse loaded with Ho-Hos and Reese's Cups and everything Little Debbie makes. And, and I would look and go, what, what are you doing? Oh, well, the, the grandkids, they want all these sweets. And I would tell my kids, look, you need to understand, these are not the same two people who raised me. <laughs> these are two old people now trying to get into heaven, <laughs> being nice to kids. Some of you are grandparents. You get it. There is something about grandkids. And if you're a grandfather, there is something about a granddaughter. That is just this connection. She melts your heart when she walks in. You would do anything for her. Imagine for a moment watching the king take and abuse her, ruin her life, have her husband killed. Imagine how you would feel. What could Ahithophel do? David was king. You know, it was a monarchy, it was not a democracy. We can criticize our leaders. They could not criticize their leaders. And, and Ahithophel knew if he criticized David, David could, with an order, have him put to death just like he did for Uriah. Ahithophel couldn't take him to court and sue him. He couldn't call the police and say, hey, this guy's committed these crimes. Can you, can you go and arrest King David? He had to keep his mouth shut and externally show no emotion. But internally, he seethed with anger. Internally, in his mind, he had murdered David a thousand times. And in his heart, he had made David pay for his sins. But there was nothing he could do. Until one day, as luck would have it, or as fate would have it, David's own son rebels against the king. And Ahithophel sits there and watches as Absalom mounts this army and invades the castle and drives David out of the castle. And Ahithophel watches David and his entourage are on the run, and Absalom takes over in the palace and now sits on the throne. And Ahithophel thinks, man, this is great. He is just salivating, watching all of this happen and smiling. And he is rubbing his hands together. And then Absalom turns to Ahithophel and says, what should I do now? <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what to do. You gather 12,000 men and you hunt David down while he is weak and on the run. 
and you get him and you kill him and him alone and then you drag his dead limp body back here to Jerusalem and we will hang his body for all to see that dirty dog and what he has done. Ahithophel is so excited that finally he's going to get his chance to get revenge on David for what David has done. But then Absalom doesn't take his advice. Absalom hesitates. He waits. And during that time, David is able to gather troops. He is able to bring men to himself. He is then able to go up against the army of Absalom, and he is able to defeat that army, and David is able to take over his throne again in the palace. And as Ahithophel watches these events unfold, knowing that his advice has not been followed, he looks around and says, life is no longer worth living. This is what I've lived for, to get revenge on David. I had my chance. I lost the opportunity. What do I do now? Set my house in order, and I hang myself. Life is no longer worth living. Years ago, I served a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And while I was there, I developed a friendship with an individual who years before um, had suffered through the murder of his sister. Um, He and his sister were very close. They had actually grown up as children of missionaries. And many times they were the only English-speaking couple um, in a country where they, uh, English-speaking children in a country where they lived. And so they were more than just siblings. They were best friends. And then one day a guy robbed her apartment and she came home and caught this robber in her apartment. And the truth is, she wasn't trying to stop him. She would have given him anything in the apartment. Um, However, this guy was scared that she would be able to ID him to the authorities. And so he shot and killed her. Just an absolutely senseless murder. This friend of mine was overcome with rage and bitterness and anger. Uh, The man was eventually caught uh, and instead of giving, uh, being given the death penalty, he was given life in prison. And this friend of mine could not believe that this guy was allowed to live and his sister was dead. And he hated him. And bitterness and rage and all of that anger just built up and built up and built up inside him. Until one day he realized that what was going on in his heart was killing him and had zero effect on the man who had murdered his sister. And he described it this way. He said, I realized that it was like I was going into the kitchen and I was opening a cabinet, reaching into that cabinet, pulling out a bottle of bleach, opening that bottle of bleach, turning it up, taking a big drink and slamming it on the counter and saying, see, take that. Because it was eating me alive and doing nothing to this guy. Several months later, and after a lot of prayer, he went to the prison and scheduled a meeting with this guy who had murdered his sister. He went in, sat down. There was the glass partition. He picked up the phone. The other guy picked up the phone. And he said, I want you to know who I am. You're in here because you murdered my sister. But the other thing I want you to know is, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done. The guy took the phone, hung it up, walked away. He didn't care. But my friend said this, I didn't do it for him. 
I did it for me. I could no longer live in that state of unforgiveness. It was killing me. When I was up in North Georgia serving a church there, I developed a, a friendship that was a little bit of an unusual friendship with a guy who was much older than me in the church. He uh, was a very successful attorney in town. He was a, a leader in the church, faithful follower of Christ. But one day he saw me out running and he stopped me later and said, hey, I saw you running. I said, yeah. He said, well, I, I like to run. He said, in fact, I'm going to run in the Thanksgiving Day half marathon in Atlanta. Would you like to, to come run in it with me? And it's like six weeks away, and I've never run that far. I've not trained for it. He's like, come on, you're young. You can do it. Just train and come run the half marathon with me. And so I agreed, and he said, well, let's, let's train together. Let's run together. And he was an empty nester, and his, his wife always had Bible studies and evening activities that she was doing. And so we would run right after work. We would go eat, and then we would just spend time talking. And, and what I discovered was this friend of mine, by the way, his name was Joe, this friend of mine, it was not just running together that I benefited from, but it was this friendship. God had given him so much wisdom. And I would ask him questions, and he would just share all these tidbits of wisdom with me. And one of the things I learned from him was that it is never healthy to hold a grudge. And in fact, some friends of mine said this about Joe. They said, the thing about Joe is, if you want Joe to be angry with you today, then you need to do something today to make Joe mad at you. But if you want Joe to be mad at you tomorrow, you've got to do something else because whatever it is you do today is not enough for him to be mad at you tomorrow. He learned to forgive and move on. Peter came to Jesus. Peter came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive the one who has offended me? up to seven times. Now, Peter thought, yeah, Jesus is going to be really impressed with this because the rabbis at the time taught that you were to forgive someone up to three times, but after three offenses, forgiveness was no longer necessary. But Peter had observed Jesus and how he interacted with others and his nature and his willingness to forgive. And Peter, picking up on that, said, well, I'm going to impress Jesus. Jesus, how often should I be willing to forgive? How many times after someone has offended me, should I forgive? Up to seven times, Jesus? Right here, Jesus, you can pat me on the back right there because that's really good. I've figured some things out. Up to seven times. Aren't you impressed, Jesus? Jesus looked at Peter and shook his head. Not up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven times. What? What? That many times? That much hurt? That much offense? How can I forgive someone who has hurt me that bad and that many times? You can't. And I can't either. And I recognize that. If I sat down with you and you told me your story and how that person hurt you, I would probably look at you and say, yeah, I get it. I don't think I could ever forgive them either. Because I couldn't. And you can't either in your own power. But through the grace of God, through the forgiveness that you have received in Jesus Christ, you can. And it's not for them. It's for you. So that you can forgive and move 
past the bitterness and find freedom in life so that you are no longer bound by that hatred and anger that you feel toward him, toward her, toward them. You can't do it and I can't do it. But in Christ, we can forgive and we can move beyond that place of always holding that grudge and bitterness against them. And when we do, that's when freedom comes. 